in verse 18, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is what Philippians is about and what we're invited into. Joy is a product of mission. Joy is a product of mission, and mission is about the exaltation and proclamation of Christ to all people and all places. Joy is a product of mission. Our default, though, is to think that joy is a product of our circumstances. We attach joy to materialism. We attach it to financial security or some standard of wealth or some season of life that we hope to get to. But if you really recognize it, joy just in the end for all of us is just something that we subjectively decide. We decide what it is that will bring us joy. But I think what we find is that joy is never really a present reality because it's always attached to the future. When circumstances are just right, when everything else falls into place, and we rarely experience it in the here and now because it's either attached to what we don't have or it's attached to a season of life in which we haven't yet arrived with no guarantee that we will. We think that joy is attached to circumstances. But consider Paul in prison, and he's joyful. And we think, how could that be? He's living essentially our worst nightmare. How could that be that he is so filled with joy, with no cell phone, no entertainment, no shows to watch, no comforts, no retirement, no tempur mattress, no Chiloso for crying out loud. All he has is a prison guard, time, and God. And he doesn't just experience a new identity, he also experiences a joy that transcends his time, his place, his situation, and his circumstance. And his situation, his experience, pushes back on us in all the ways that we wonder whether or not Jesus is really all we need. Is Jesus alone really enough? And if we're honest, we generally kind of respond to something like this where we say, well, of course Paul feels that way because, well, you know, he's Paul. He's a super Christian. He's got something that we don't. He was given something that the average Christian is not given. But that's not true. Because throughout history, this story has repeated itself time and time again, where an otherworldly joy is experienced in circumstances that you'd least expect, because that's exactly how the gospel operates. I was reminded this week of a story that meant a lot to me, essentially, whenever I was coming to terms with my own faith. It's a story that I read, and as soon as I read it, you just stopped reading, and you stared off thinking about it, because it was so powerful and moving. It's the story of Richard Wormbrun. If you don't know who he is, he was a Romanian pastor that was a leader and a worker in the underground church whenever communism was taking over Romania immediately after World War II in 1945. And since communism came to town, atheism became the official doctrine of the country. And so the communists made a big public display of power by televising a gathering where they allowed all of the Christian leaders in the country to stand up and to recant their faith and to offer their support to the new regime. And he saw pastor after pastor, Christian leader after Christian leader stand up and recant their faith and support the new regime. 
And Richard's wife, Sabina, leaned over and said, when you get up there, you have got to remove this shame from the face of Christ. And he said, if I get, if I get up there and say something, you'll no longer have a husband. And she said, very famously, she said, I'd rather be a widow than have a coward for a husband. And so he stands up and he preached. And he preached that it was their duty to glorify Christ in Christ alone. That there's only one name by which we bow down to, and it's the name of Jesus. And of course, he was arrested, he was put in prison, and there he stayed for the next 14 years in a prison 30 feet underground. And his story is, is incredible. He, he was tortured, he was beaten, he was interrogated in ways that honestly are too gruesome to describe here. And he said, essentially the worst part of his time in prison was the brainwashing. He actually went so far as to say he, he wanted to be back in a Nazi camp instead of being in a communist camp because they just literally had no respect for human life. And I think that's saying something. And he said the brainwashing techniques were, were awful. They would, for years on end, they would play sounds of terrifying sounds at night throughout the prison over a loudspeaker. They would have to sit in a dark room in a chair and sit up straight listening to a recording say, communism is good, communism is good, communism is good, communism is good, for 17 hours straight, on repeat, over and over and over. And all of that would go away if they simply recanted their faith and gave up other members in the underground church. But he never did. And Richard Wormburn would say that he experienced the depths of the human soul, as you can imagine, when he was in prison. But he said he found something else. He found joy, and a joy that he could never find any other place than in that prison. And in his book, Tortured for Christ, he said this. He said it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. My goodness, what faith. What joy to be able to preach. And he said that while he was in prison... He said God's presence was so real to him whenever he was in that jail cell that even after he got out, he never again felt it like he did the way that he felt it when he was in prison. Paul's story is one that's been repeated countless times throughout history. That joy is a product of mission. There's a joy that's found in the darkest corners of the darkest dungeons. It's a joy that transcends time place, situation, and circumstance. And as we approach the book of Philippians, we do have to recognize one thing. We have to recognize how foreign Paul's situation is to us, how foreign it is to our time and place. We don't live under the threat of being in prison for preaching the gospel. I didn't come to church today, and nobody's going to church in America today worried that the secret police are going to barge in and arrest everybody. We live under the rare banner of religious freedom. And that causes us oftentimes to look at a situation like Paul's and think that it's a special case. 
Yet, this fear is the reality for so much of the global church. Even secular bodies are recognizing that Christians by far are the most persecuted group of people in the world. And it's not even close. And it's on the rise. In 2016, the Pew Research Forum said that Christians are now persecuted in 144 countries worldwide. That was an increase from a previous year when it was 125. In one year, 19 more countries joined that list. Open Doors said that five years ago, only one country was given the classification of extreme persecution, which was North Korea. Now, five years later, that list is up to 11. It's estimated that half of the prisoners in North Korean labor camps are Christians. China recently found out that there's actually more Christians in their country than members of the National Communist Party. So they've decided to crack down, and they've started imprisoning pastors left and right. They're literally just going in and bulldozing churches without notice to remove all visible signs of Christianity. And in Iraq, the Christian population dropped 75% in the last eight years alone. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity released a report in 2017 that over the last decade, an average of 90,000 Christians were martyred per year. That's 246 martyrs a day. And in 2018, Great Britain commissioned a study that looked at religious persecution worldwide. And the report concluded that the persecution of Christians is now so bad that it now runs the opportunity to be qualified for being classified as a global genocide according to the standards adopted by the UN. Paul's situation is distant to us. But for much of our brothers and sisters around the world, it's normal. It's their Sunday morning. Passages like this would offer comfort and encouragement to them that, yes, Jesus is enough. It offers an otherworldly joy to people that need it. So why do I bring all of that up? Well, so that we wouldn't be on the sidelines of how God operates in the world. And we would remember and not forget the fact that we are called to be a people of mission. We are a missionary enterprise to take Christ and what Paul will say in Philippians 2, to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we consider the persecution of the church worldwide, we should also remember the fact that the church is exploding in those same exact places, those places of tremendous persecution and resistance. Why? Because joy is a product of mission. That resurrection, no matter how much you try to kill this thing called Christianity, it keeps coming back from the dead. There's a joy in the midst of death. There's a joy in the midst of suffering that is otherworldly. It's because joy is a product of mission. It's a joy that transcends time place, situation, circumstance, and suffering. And when we lose sight of God's priorities in the proclamation of Christ, then we will sacrifice joy because we've sacrificed our identity and we've forgotten who we are because the name of Christ is no longer at the center of our faith. And so we start to live a Christianity that looks for joy in other things. And we look for it in self-help gospels or self-improvement gospels 
or gospels about personal awakening or personal improvement. And in the end, we settle for a gospel where we are the center and the focus. And so as we approach the letter to the Philippians, we cannot run, we can't, you know, make the mistake of thinking that Paul's situation in prison is a special case. Because all we're going to do is think that it doesn't apply. Instead, we have to think of Paul's experience as a rubric for understanding the Christian life. Yes, we may not be in prison, but just like him, we are no less called to view our life and to view our circumstances through the mission that God has given to us. Because it's only through that lens by which everything else makes sense. It's only through that lens by which we begin to have answers for where God has placed us, where God has put us. It's only through that lens we understand the why questions of life. So as we consider the rest of this passage this morning, all I really want to do is try to use this passage to set us up for the rest of the letter. Paul's situation and how he views his circumstances in light of God's purposes essentially presents us with you know, some very simple challenges to experience or some very simple challenges that we can start to think about as we move forward in this letter. Because the offer of Paul is to experience the joy of being a people of mission, which means we have to ask the question, what are the things that get in the way of us being a people of mission? What, is the, what are the obstacles? What are the challenges that I face? What things get in the way for me being somebody that is willing to proclaim the name of Christ, whether it's to my kids or internationally or to my neighbor? Because we essentially live in a place in which we have religious freedom, and yet why is the church getting smaller when we have so many resources? We have religious freedom, and yet we don't open our mouth. And the first challenge that we see is that God's mission exposes how we view others. So Paul starts off his letter by saying that what's happened to him has really served to advance the gospel. Why? Verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now the imperial guard that he's referring to are what uh, are known as the praetorian. They were an elite rank of soldier that were tasked with defending the emperor and the palace. They were the Roman Empire's version of the secret service. And Paul spent at least two years in prison in Rome. And what that looked like was he actually literally spent 24-7 chained to a praetorian guard. Literally, physically chained for two years. No privacy. He was never alone. He slept shackled to someone else for two years. Now, you can imagine the Praetorian were not known for their hospitality towards prisoners. You know, who's going to want to pull prisoner duty that week to go and be shackled to somebody that you see that in all of the you know, realities of their humanity, they never get to shower, and you're chained to somebody that's just a common robber or a common thief or some no-name like Paul. I'm sure that on many occasions, Paul was the recipient of their contempt. Yet, he preached to them. He didn't look at them as the problem. He didn't blame them for representing a corrupt justice system. 
He didn't view them as the problem or what's wrong with the world because they represented an ideology that was different than his. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, and they didn't stand a chance because Paul preached to them. And he preached to them to the point where he could say that the whole praetorian, which was 9,000 soldiers in Rome, had heard the good news of Jesus Christ. How do you view your neighbor? How do you view the person that doesn't believe in the same things or think the same ways that you do? How do you view a Democrat? How do you view a Republican? How do you view somebody that doesn't think the world needs the same answers that you want to provide? In the end, the mission of God will expose our contempt for others. It exposes the ways that we're far more like the Praetorian than Paul. And right now, you know, culturally, uh, you know, the default is to just suspicion and hatred uh, of others. You don't have to have a PhD in sociology to recognize that we live in a country that is just deeply divided on everything. I mean, we're just outraged at everything. Every headline, every event, every post, everything is a battleground. Everything is an opportunity to paint the person that you disagree with in the worst possible light and to consider them your enemy and to feel completely justified doing so. You know, we have to step back and think, you know, in light of what the church is suffering around the world, are we really willing to, you know, recognize the fact that how can we claim to be a people that are about the gospel and about the mission of God when we can barely get over the fact that somebody disagrees with us and we can't even be civil? You know, we just live in a culture in which hate is the norm. And it's hard not to do that. It's hard not to get swept up in the culture of anger, the culture of animosity, and yet we're called to, are we not? Because we can't be a people of mission when we start deciding who's worthy of gospel love, who's worthy of the compassion of Christ based on some sense of earthly ideology. Because for us to claim the gospel is also to confess that the distance between me and my worst enemy doesn't even compare to the distance that once stood between me and the Lord Jesus. That the gospel is built and began with Jesus' willingness to go to the ones that are completely other, completely different than him. That for your sake, he left his throne to be one that had no place to lay his head which is why Paul repeatedly says that there are no more dividing lines. In Christ, there is no male, female, barbarian, Greek, slave, Scythian, free, praetorian, Christian, Democrat, Republican, you name it. All dividing lines in Christ are erased, period, full stop. And when we're called to go out into the world with that good news, it will always expose our contempt. But what happens when we do, when we see the gospel go out to those that are different than us? It emboldens and energizes the church for mission. What happens with Paul? He says in verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So as a result of Paul's imprisonment, others are boldly preaching without fear. Why is that? My take is that the praetorian are coming to Christ. Paul isn't just preaching. These praetorian are also believing. 
I think the church is seeing these praetorian come into their fold, walking into their doors as a brother in Christ. And they're seeing these guards converted, and that gives them the boldness to go out and preach. Because even if they're thrown in prison, they'll be amongst their own. And God would still use them for his purposes. So what do they have to fear? They've seen the power of the gospel cross boundaries and unite all things under one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And it's a powerful thing to see. You know, Richard Wormbrun would talk about how throughout the years that he was in prison, on more than one occasion, there would be a knock on his door late at night when it was quiet. And on the other side would be one of the communist guards. But they would come to him and they would be weeping. And they would say, how could you be so kind to me and loving to me after all the times I've beat you? How could you give me such nice kindness and compassion? And there, Richard would preach the gospel to them. And they would believe. And many of them would go and join the underground church, which they formerly persecuted. And on one occasion, he was brought into the interrogation room, and there was one interrogator that was always really angry. And once again, he brought in Richard into the interrogation room, and he said, recant your faith now. And Richard said, no, I can't. And he started yelling louder. He said, recant your faith, or I will have you beaten. And Richard said, no, I can't. The interrogator got his gun out, pulled it, and he said, recant your faith now, or it's going to cost you your life. And he says, no, I cannot recant my faith in my Lord. He said when he said that, the interrogator just dropped his gun and he fell to his knees and he just burst into tears and wept. And Richard said, why are you crying? He said, I had to know whether what you believed was worth your life because I believe and I know it's going to cost me mine. And there Richard knelt down with him and he prayed. And he prayed for his safety And he prayed that he would come to know Christ in a new way. We can get stuck in our trivialities, or we can see the beautiful power of God that unites all things under Christ when we are willing to take it across the lines that we would otherwise keep ourselves distant from those that are unlike us. How do you view your neighbor? Secondly, God's mission exposes our egos. In verses 15 to 17, Paul says that some are preaching from envy in rivalry, But others preach from goodwill and love. But whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, he rejoices. Now, Paul is simple in what he states, but profound in what he implies. It's about Jesus. It's not about him. Notice how his ego has taken a back seat. He lays his reputation aside that others would seek to damage. He supports others in the work that he would love to be doing. He doesn't live as though it's all up to him. And he's not going about this situation as though he's the guy that has to be out front so that he gets all the praise. God's mission had to confront his ego as well. And it will always confront ours. It will always expose you know, our self-promotion, our images that we want to project, our desire for recognition. It exposes ways that we want to engage in ministry when it can be noticed by others. We don't want to share the gospel because we don't feel skilled at it and we only like to do things that we feel competent at. We're afraid of rejection, how we'll be viewed by others. We're afraid of being embarrassed, 
Sometimes we think, I can barely win an argument, yet alone win a soul for Christ. But in the end, all of those things are about what? They're about us. It's not about Jesus. And what Paul is confessing is the same recognition of John the Baptist, that when Jesus comes on the scene, he must increase and I must decrease. And lastly, mission exposes how we view our problems as bigger than God's purposes. Paul says that what's happened to him has served to advance the gospel. Yet, so much of Christianity is built on flip-flopping that verse to say, I want the gospel to advance what happens to me. I want the gospel to fix my problems. I want the gospel to give me the best version of life that I want. I want the gospel to be a means to my own ends rather than me being a means to the gospel's ends. And I'm guilty of this all the time. You know, how much do we focus on getting out of the problems we're in or avoiding the problems that we don't want rather than stopping and recognizing perhaps God has purposes in our problems? And that's how Paul views his. What does he say? He says in verse 17, he says, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Another way of translating that is saying, knowing that I have been placed here knowing that I have been placed. He sees his problems in light of God's purposes. And in that, that prison cell became precious. That prison cell became a place where he encountered joy. That prison cell became a place that was life-giving to others. So we have to ask ourselves, where have we been placed? Where have you been placed? Who do you live next to? Where do you live? Who do you work next to? Who are you chained in life to right now? We so often think of our life as being an issue of secondary causes. It's because my job's here, my family's here. No, it's because Christ placed you here and he placed you here with purpose. So that no matter what you're going through right now, no matter what circumstances you're facing, you're right where Jesus wants you. You've not been put on the back burner. You've not been forgotten about. You were called before God created anything at all. And you were called according to his purpose. As we think about all these things, as we move forward, Philippians is a reminder of who we are. It's a reminder of who we're called to be. And it holds out to us the opportunity to be a people of joy. Another worldly joy where we could say, what if everyone in this room began to go out and began to bear witness, whether it's to our kids, it's to our neighbor, to our coworker. Imagine the joy that would take place of beginning to see people that were unlike you, now united with you under one Christ, one purpose, one baptism. Maybe we can begin to pray for just that, that we wouldn't just be a place that grows because of attraction, but we'd be a church that grows because of conversion because we're called to be a people of mission. And might we be a place that can say Christ is proclaimed, and in that we rejoice. Let's pray.